2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Picasso knows your vacation
1: home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at two hundred K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's PACASO.com.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're
0: back with another Closet Edition. Uh, So this week, we got kind of hijacked off on a side trail that we didn't quite expect at the beginning of this week because of a personal experience you had. Right, Robert?
1: Yeah, this this would have happened Wednesday, and it got me researching some other topics and looking into it, and then I mentioned it to you, and uh, the next thing we know, we were putting notes together for a couple of episodes, but it's great because this is also a topic, it gets into some topics that have been requested by listeners as well. Mm So let me set a little uh, background uh, for for what I'm about to describe. So give us your origin story. Yeah, my origin story, uh, such as it it is. When I was a kid, maybe seven or eight years old, which is is, uh, uh, the age of my own son today, Mm -hmm. I had a very vivid and unsettling mental experience. Uh, It it wasn't really a nightmare, but much like a nightmare, there was this ineffable quality to it, you know, like even as I try to explain it, uh, my words can't really relate how it made me feel and how it still makes me feel like when I when I remember it, when I think back on it, I can still feel a bit of the the terror that I felt then, uh, even though just a flat description of it sounds kind of dumb.
0: Yeah, that's often how nightmares are. It's like the the thing that was really scary in your dream wouldn't necessarily make a good horror movie because it's hard to communicate why it was scary.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like I once had a nightmare about a, a polar bear that uh, was peeking into a house with a periscope. And somehow that was terrifying uh, in the dream. But outside <laughs> of perfect. the dream, it's just ridiculous and comical. So uh, th- but this particular situation, it was it was not a nightmare. Um, I was in my bed and I have always slept with white noise. Uh, so even then I had this like oversized box fan in my uh, my childhood room. Mm-hmm. And I should also explain that I watched a lot of TV in those days and the, you know, my family would watch TV together and there were various shows on TBS that we would regularly check out. And one of them was the sitcom Sanford and son. You remember Sanford and son, right? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Red Fox. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't want to use the verb hear or heard here because I, it's, it's not like I actually heard sound. It's not like I experienced an auditory hallucination. It's more that I suddenly remembered it as I lay there in bed. It was like a jagged memory that was suddenly embedded in my, my psyche. And it was the sound of the Sanford and Son character, Fred Sanford, speaking in slow motion through the back of a box fan, addressing the character Grady in this drawn-out audience oscillating voice <laughs> so yeah, that's great
0: because uh, <laughs> that, that has that perfect quality of something that would be terrifying in like a, a dreamlike memory but it you just can't see it from the outside it's like i had a horrifying dream about bob saget from full house
1: yeah it's i mean it's just so ridiculously dumb like if i were to to fictionalize it even a little bit i, I feel like i'd want to change it completely you know um but 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 the the thing is like it definitely filled me with terror and uh-huh. i can i can remember that terror and i can i can really compare it only to the stark sort of terror that one feels in a nightmare uh you know especially with the nonsensical elements to it and uh and indeed, it also, it did not feel like I was remembering something specifically from watching TV, and it didn't feel like I was dreaming. I, it was, I guess, in some ways, like I was remembering a dream that I had never had. But then the sensation passed, the anxiety of it passed, though I, I've always been able to feel like a tinge of it when I think back on the experience. mm mm-hmm. So I've never, I was never really sure what it was exactly. I kind of always just sort of thought, well, okay, it was, you know, something like a, a dream or a nightmare. I don't know. Um, and, and looking back, I think there are perhaps times in my life where I had like similar experiences in the years after that, but, but pretty, you know, far flung from each other, far less intense. And, uh, because of these factors, I've never really connected those experiences with this childhood experience.
0: You know, when I think about experiences like that, especially involving lying in bed as a child, I think one thing that's often going on there is that in our memories, we are having a hard time sorting the demarcation line between wakefulness and sleep. Yes, Um, And this is definitely characteristic of of memories I have as a child. Like, there are things that I feel like I remember as happening while I was lying in bed awake as, as a kid. But in fact, I think they probably were some sort of like... You know, edge of sleep hallucination, hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucination, uh, dreams bleeding over into wakefulness, but that it's it's hard to to sort out what's what at that age.
1: Yeah, and I would say prior to this week if if you really put me to task on on what that experience was I had as a kid, I would have probably uh, leaned on on the, you know, hypnagogic uh, explanation of, for what was happening, you know, like I was somewhere mm-hmm. between wakefulness and sleep and therefore my mind was susceptible to this kind of uh, semi-paranormal experience.
0: Mm-hmm. And these kind of experiences are super common, by the way. There's, there's oh, yeah. Nothing especially like pathological about them,
1: right? Yeah. So you know, I also don't want to make it sound like this like shaped me as an experience. You know, it's just <laughs> no, it's your I kinda... origin story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I continued to watch Sanford and Son after it. Clearly, mm-hmm. it didn't uh, it didn't affect me uh, in that capacity. No night terror can make Red Fox unfunny. <laughs> uh, so so that was that was you know my life up until this week. Uh, Wednesday, March 25th, 2020, I then experienced what were basically four of these in a single day. Wow. So uh, I can I can co- kind of explain two of them, I guess. Um, so I've been exce- I've been obsessed with Peter Lorre this week, mm. uh, you know, the the famed actor Um And I've been feeding that obsession, you know, to try and get my mind off of more stressful matters. And I was in the the process of actually responding to an email to you, Joe, about, uh, we had a slight sort back and forth about the 1936 movie Mad Love.
0: Which I have not seen, but I've been meaning to see for years because it has one of the best trailers of all time. Like, the the two-minute long trailer for this movie is more entertaining than most entire movies. Uh, It's got Peter Lorre sitting on the couch at his house and and he's got this giant dog next to him that's bigger than he is. And then he gets a phone call from a beautiful actress to like tell him what a wonderful actor he is. And then he starts explaining the new movie he's in. And it's Mad Love, the movie that this is a trailer for.
1: Yeah. And it's it's a wild movie. Um, I feel like it doesn't it doesn't it's not remembered as well as it should be. It has so many bizarre elements in it. There's there's knife throwing. There's <laughs> there are hand transplants. There's uh-huh. tragic mad scientist love stories. We got to come back and do this as a
0: as a full movie episode sometime. It's got the line in the trailer. I, a poor peasant, have conquered science. Why can't I conquer love?
1: Yes. It's such a great moment. Uh, But but in our email, you specifically mentioned a face that uh, Peter Lorre makes uh, when uh, uh, when when uh, a previous film is mentioned to him. Yeah. And and it was weird when I was about to respond to that. I was like going to type. And then suddenly I had like this kind of like mashup in my head, like a, a memory of his face in that trailer. And then kind of this The this the fact that Laurie is deceased. uh, I don't know. Just kind of like as if they were kind of floating in my head, and I suddenly had this just this bizarre déjà vu like experience that was like really overwhelming and i had to i had to get up and i had to go had to go lay down and then uh, wow. uh there was a, a just a little later in the day i i had another experience like that again i was at a computer i was looking over some of the teleschool activities that my son had done in google classroom and i was making sure that everything was mm-hmm. checked off and it was like checked off in two different places and you know it's this juggling act of like eight different learning apps and then suddenly I have this jagged chunk of deja vu like mental energy uh, that, um, though quite vague this time, felt like a fragment from some old TV show. Maybe Carol Burnett or something, if I had to guess, but I, but I, I really, that, that would be just guessing and like reshaping the memory. But again, it hit me so hard that I had to get up. I had to go into another room. I, like, I could feel my, um, it felt like a like an anxiety attack. And I had to I had to I had to lay down for a little bit. And then in both of those cases, when I when I laid down, there was kind of an echo of the initial experience where I had like kind of another one. And um and, and then I was fine. But it was really weird uh, to 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 experience that, especially having not really experienced anything like that since I was a kid. All right. So I'm
0: trying to sort out the elements of what it is you're describing here. So you're saying that there was uh, there was an element of like sudden onset, overwhelming anxiety, but also uh, sort of some mental imagery and a feeling of deja vu, like familiarity with whatever thoughts were currently entering your mind. Is that it?
1: Right. Yeah. And and. While the first one, the one with Peter Lorre, did have I guess there was some sort of contemplation of of death in there, I guess, and and so that one was a little loaded. But but the other one had no like nightmare imagery. It was just kind of like a a bit of TV shrapnel. And actually, I had I had one more last night uh, where I was just making I was making a drink. I was like, like uh, making uh, some sort of tiki cocktail, uh, standing in the same place I normally do, and then there was just some sort of nondescript image uh, that. Uh, that that gave me a similar sensation, and then it passed.
0: So you've had, so these are like multiple instances of deja vu-like experience in the course of a couple days. How common is that for you normally? Would you say that you
1: have a feeling of deja vu maybe once a year, more or less? It's an interesting question because it's a question that definitely comes up in some of the studies that we're going to look at where they Mm -hmm. ask people, how how many deja vu experiences do you have? Is it, uh, you know, once a week, a couple of times a month? I'd be really hard pressed to say because normally when I have deja vu, it is so mild and uninteresting. It's just kind of like, huh, that's a bit of deja vu. And then I I move on, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's never like this. So I, 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 if I were to, to, to take just a wild guess, I'd say maybe, maybe like once every couple of months. Hmm.
0: That that sounds about right for me, maybe a little bit less frequently now for me. I, one thing I've noticed, and this is going to line up absolutely with some of the research we look at later, I definitely feel like I got deja vu-like experiences much more often when I was a young child. Um, oh, yeah. When I was younger, I, uh, I think I may have actually mentioned this on the show before, I have one very specific instance of deja vu like feelings that stand out in my memory, uh, and it was when I was a, a kid. I don't remember what age, but I, you know, I was young enough to be playing out in the front yard with friends. I think we were like running around, chasing each other with sticks and stuff. And there was a low-hanging branch that was coming off of a tree uh, hanging over our front yard. And I guess I was distracted. I was looking back at a friend of mine or something. And I turned around and I ran into this low-hanging branch and hit my face. I think I ended up getting a black eye from running into the branch. And right then I had this powerful sensation like... This has all happened before. He was standing right there where he was, and I was here, and I ran into the branch, and it was this time of day, this time of year. And I never knew how to make sense of that when I was a kid because, like, I think I pretty quickly understood that, like, no, this has not actually happened before. Uh, I even as a child i don't think i attached any kind of magical significance to it like i didn't think mm-hmm. that i was clairvoyant or something it was just very odd i was like why do i feel like this exact thing happened before when i know it didn't
1: yeah the the stat about it occurring more when you're younger definitely comes up which of course doesn't really help me out um in explaining this <laughs> because uh, i'm uh, what 41 now uh, and it seems like i i should have had the bulk of this earlier on, um, but well, well he did, I mean, that's this, just on average. I mean, everybody's different. Yeah, Some yeah.
0: people have it much more frequently than other people do. I, I'd say I, it's pretty rare for me now. I think I probably feel it at least a few times a year.
1: Well, uh, after after I had these experiences, I, I you know I initially asked, well, what's different, right? That's what you you can always uh, you know tr- use trying to duck, right? Uh, I what think of a few so, things that are that are different this week. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, first of all, I I thought, well, maybe there's this panicky aspect to it. Maybe I had too much coffee, but no, it was a usual amount of coffee uh, for Mm -hmm. the day. Uh, I thought maybe, you know, uh, it had something to do with staring at screens too much because I was working, you know, at my own laptop and then having to go in and help my son with his laptop. Mm -hmm. But, I dismissed that pretty quickly as well because it seemed like the connection to some sort of anxiety was unavoidable. Because you know, while while my family and I are, are objectively you know lucky and, and fortunate compared to plenty of other people going through COVID nineteen, social distancing, shelter in place mandates, or, or actual you know illness. There there are a lot of things to be anxious about right now. I mean, there's the pandemic itself, local, individual, national responses to it, household protocols to stay safe. My son's teleschooling, uh, my own attempts to make my work function remotely, uh, trying to follow the, the the World Health Organization recommendations to only check the news once or twice a day, that sort of thing. <laughs> Yeah, how's that going? I think I'm I'm still exceeding the recommended dosage of news per day, but mm. it is helping me cut down a bit. Uh and and like uh, some of the times when I'll reach for my phone to uh, look at the news, I will put it down instead. So uh I I think that's it's some advice to take to heart. Yeah.
0: Well, I feel like looking up that stats it's like looking up you know like how many alcoholic drinks are you supposed to have a day. <laughs> it's like Yeah. Uh it's like maybe if you find yourself Googling that, it's it's worth considering that you should consume less.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, another another bit of um, of info I'll throw out on the, the anxiety uh, it, part of it is that I know on Wednesday, uh, I did go on a walk, but uh, otherwise I didn't really leave my front porch or my house, and I ended up not doing yoga or any other kind of mindfulness exercise that day. Um, So that could have also been a factor. It's like, well, I did less to sort of get out of the default mode network and to escape panic that day. Uh, So maybe I was more susceptible to it. Yesterday, I did do yoga um, and only had one of these episodes. So, uh, you know, again, I think that supports the idea that, well, there's something going on here with anxiety. Right. And, And to be sure, I. I can be an anxious person in the best of circumstances. And and I've gone through, you know, some stressful times in my life without having any episodes like this before. But I thought, well, maybe this is kind of the accumulation of things, right? Death by a thousand cuts, right? Mm -hmm. There's just all these little things and some extra things to be anxious about, and it kind of builds up.
0: Yeah, that kind of doesn't make sense for having anomalous, uh, I don't know, types of mental phenomena. But then again, one thing that strikes me as interesting about this is that I don't normally associate deja vu-like sensations with uh, anxiety.
1: Yeah, I had not really either because, again, I didn't I'd never really thought of of that experience from my childhood as being really connected to deja vu. But but after these uh, these experiences on Wednesday, I started doing a few searches, looking around. And uh, indeed, a quick glance around the Internet for deja vu panic attacks indeed turned up some hits. Like uh, there was someone on an epilepsy website uh, with a post titled deja vu slash panic attacks. Very tired of being undiagnosed. Uh, mm. Another health board, nightmarish deja vu and anxiety attacks attacks. What's going on? Um, And in both of these posts, people were responding with like, yeah, I get this too. Uh, I I hate it when this happens, that sort of thing. And granted, we're talking about message boards where people are, you know, engaging in varying degrees of self-diagnosis, et cetera. But it was enough to make me think, well, maybe there is more to this. And And, uh, you know, I've never really researched deja vu itself all that much, so I should look a little deeper. So in in these episodes, that's what we thought we'd do. We take a little time to explore deja vu and to explore the connection between deja vu and anxiety and deja vu and dreams.
0: All right. Well, then maybe we should take a quick break. And then when we come back, we can dive into the memory fog.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms visit visible.com. All right, we're back deja vu, uh, a term that I guess most people are familiar with, but you might not you might not necessarily be able to define it off the top of your head. Um, We should probably just talk about what it means.
0: Uh, Right. So déjà vu comes from the French. It literally means already seen. Uh, Now, there are actually a number of different terms for similar overlapping experiences that often kind of get blended together and blurred together. For example, there's another term that's sometimes used. uh, It's déjà vécu, which means already lived. And so Mm -hmm. there's like a lot of things that we call déjà vu, meaning already seen, are probably you know, probably could be categorized as déjà vu, meaning like I've already been through this situation or I've already lived this moment.
1: Yeah, there are, there are about like 20 different variations of this, and, uh, and I'll get to some more of them uh, in the second episode of this series.
0: Yes, uh, but basically whatever it is, déjà vu, déjà vécu, uh, it it means that you are having some kind of experience uh, of a stimulus. You're looking at something, you're hearing something, you're feeling something, you're going through a situation and you suddenly get the feeling that this has already happened. I've already seen that or I've already been here. This has happened sometime in my past despite evidence to the contrary, that like you are not seeing something you've already seen. You're not living through a moment that has already happened. I feel very confident that, you know, in my my experience as a child that I had not already been playing with those same friends and run into a branch and gotten a black eye and all that. But for some reason, I felt like I had.
1: Yeah. uh, Likewise, my childhood experience was it was, again, not the, the feeling that there was an actual voice in the room with me. It wasn't it wasn't like that. It was just this feeling that You know, the the terror was associated with the the fact that I I didn't understand, like, what the sensation came from, not that it was real.
0: I guess with your original sensation as a child, there's another level of complexity, though, and that'll get into stuff we'll talk about more in the second episode uh, with ideas like déjà rêve, which... uh, you like that, how I said that
1: French word? Oh, um, yeah, you, you yeah. hit the French <laughs> nicely on that.
0: Rev, <laughs> which means uh, already dreamed. So, like, there are some cases where you're not even experiencing real external stimuli. You know, it would be like, I already had this experience as a dream, but then maybe the current experience is not is just an imaginative moment. Uh, so, it can get very complicated in meta. Uh,
1: yeah, but, I mean, especially since just the, the, the vast uh, differences that are possible from, uh, from from brain to brain, from mind to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of the sense I get from a lot of this research is that when you're dealing with the, the basic broad deja vu experience, mm. uh, you know, one size is not going to fit all. Like it seems like it's going to be a slightly different uh, experience, slightly different frequency depending on, the individual and the current state of the individual. Right.
0: I I would maybe categorize all of this stuff under an umbrella that we could just call anomalous familiarity, a sense of familiarity with something that you have no reason to be familiar with. So credit for the term déjà vu is usually given to a French philosopher, writer, and parapsychologist named Émile Boirac. Uh, He used the term in a letter to the editor of an academic journal in 1876, though I do not think Borac made a distinction, uh, from what I can tell, between déjà vu as like a normal psychological phenomenon versus the supposed psychic power of clairvoyance. And this is something that comes up a bit throughout the history of research on déjà vu. Um, I I think it's more recently that déjà vu has been has gotten a lot of attention as a like just serious uh, subjective phenomenon as opposed to people looking at it, trying to find evidence that it's like literal precognition.
1: It's weird, isn't it? This this kind of um, idea about deja vu is really reflected in the Matrix movies, remember, where... Oh, yeah. uh, If if you see a black cat twice or whatever, it's just a glitch in the matrix and it's not really treated. It's not really a major plot point. It's just kind of like, huh, isn't that interesting? Uh, Uh (laughs) uh, Nothing you should uh, waste your time with Neo. Uh, Just uh, keep keep on course. Well, you could look at that two different ways. You could look at that as like, oh, it's just a little thing.
0: Or you could also look at it as, at least in the Matrix movies, it is giving you real information about the external world. And, yeah. uh, oh, and one thing that we will come back to is there are some theories of deja vu in which the experience of deja vu is giving you some real information about the external world, but it's not clairvoyant or precognitive. You're not having the sensation because you actually saw the future from the past. It's more likely Having to do with the brain straining to connect memories that uh, that may not be exactly how they feel. Yeah. But one thing that I, I found was interesting is that before it was fully described and named in a clinical or scientific context, Deja Vu was observed by a number of authors and poets throughout history.
1: Yeah, I was reading a little bit about this from the Deja Vu researcher, Art Funkhauser, who will come back to some of his uh, some of the some work that he was involved with a paper that he was a co-author on yeah, a little bit later. Uh, but he pointed out a few different early examples. Uh, one of the earliest, I think the earliest that he Uh, identified. Well, he's pointing to the writings of St. Augustine. But to understand what Augustine's critiquing, you have to go back to the Roman poet uh, um, Ovid, who uh, lived 43 BCE through 17 CE. So Ovid had written about the human soul as a thing, quote, deathless and ever, quote, when they have left their former seat, do they live in new abodes and dwell in the bodies that have received them? So Ovid is getting into ideas of precognition and more specifically the survival of the human soul. So Ovid is not talking about deja vu here, uh, but what he's talking about, like basically the idea of reincarnation, about the soul passing from one life to the next. Mm -hmm. Uh, So 300 years later, St. Augustine is critiquing Ovid's words, and he writes the following, quote, for we must not uh, acquiesce in their story who assert that a Samian Pythagoras recollected some things which he experienced when he was previously here in another body and others that they experienced something of the same sort in their minds. But it may be conjectured that these were untrue recollections such as we commonly experience in sleep when we fancy we remember as though we had done it or seen it, what we never did or saw at all." And that the minds of these persons, even though awake, were affected in this way at the suggestion of malignant and deep deceitful spirits whose care it is to confirm or to sow some false belief concerning the changes of souls in order to deceive men. And that is from uh, Augustine's On the Trinity. Uh, So so basically he's he's saying, okay, Ovid is, uh, you know, don't listen to Ovid because he might just be talking about this thing that we have all have some experience with. And uh, Funkhauser is saying that that Augustine is is probably talking about deja vu here.
0: Yeah, uh, I found another great example by the British poet Alfred Lord Tennyson, who wrote a poem around 1833 or 1834 called The Two Voices. Now, uh, this poem was written during a period of just deep misery and despair for Tennyson. Uh, The basic form it takes is of an internal argument between two parts of himself about whether or not to commit suicide, which he describes saying, quote, pain rises up, old pleasures pall. there is one remedy for it all. It's actually very similar uh, in many ways to the famous to be or not to be soliloquy from Hamlet, Um, It's certainly one of Tennyson's darkest works. But there's a lot of strange beauty and insight in this passage where he discusses the sensation of false memory, which did not yet have the name déjà vu. Uh, So Tennyson writes... Much more if first I floated free, as naked essence must I be incompetent of memory. For memory dealing but with time, and he with matter, could she climb beyond her own material prime? Moreover, something is or seems that touches me with mystic gleams, like glimpses of forgotten dreams, of something felt, like something here, of something done, I know not where such as no language may declare.
1: That's nice. I also, I am. I don't know if I'm alone here, but I feel like you could probably drop a beat behind Tennyson and it yeah. would have some serious flow to it.
0: Uh, there's another one from uh, British poetry that I found. It's kind of on a happier occasion, though. It's by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and he manages to take the happy occasion of a poem and, and go in very dark places with it. But anyway, this is uh, from a sonnet by Coleridge called... Uh, Composed on a journey homeward, the author having received intelligence of the birth of a son. He begins by writing— Intelligence
1: of the birth of a son, yeah, like a spy yeah. told him about it.
0: <laughs> exactly. I love it. <laughs> but he writes, um, "Oft, o'er my brain does that strange fancy roll, which makes the present, while the flash doth last, seem a mere semblance of some unknown past. huh. And then one more, uh, Charles Dickens writes about it in uh, pretty straightforwardly in, in his novel, David Copperfield. He writes, we have all some experience of a feeling which comes over us occasionally, of what we are saying and doing having been said or done before in a remote time, of our having been surrounded dim ages ago by the same faces, objects, and circumstances, of our knowing perfectly what will be said next as if we suddenly remembered it. Hmm. I like the part about dim ages ago because I think that is also a very consistent and interesting feature of déjà vu experiences, at least in my life and as I've often read about them, is so you have the incorrect sensation of remembering present events or present stimuli from the past, but you can't place it. So you don't think like, I had an experience like this four months ago, or, you know, I had an experience like this two years ago. It's more like it happened in this inaccessible kind of vague other time, which I think may be the reason that a lot of people chalk this up to memory of past lives.
1: Yeah, you can definitely see where, if you wanted to believe in past lives, this is the sort of uh, the sort of stuff you could turn to and sort of uh, you know warp into evidence. Yeah, um, and indeed, most examples that that I mean I've experienced uh, I think all the examples I've experienced have that vagueness to them and you do see that in most of the re- the reporting however when we uh, eventually turn to the link between deja vu and dreams there are some specific cases where people have a strong connection between like the deja vu experience they're having now and a specific dream that they remember um, so i guess just a reminder that yeah with with deja vu experiences with this broad category of deja vu experiences there's there's a lot of variety. And so there, uh, even though the the trend seems to be towards uh, just, you know, uh, the the fog of uh, of half-remembered things, the dim ages, there are occasions where it doesn't seem so dim to the person experiencing it. Which is very interesting. It makes you wonder what's yeah. different about those cases. And we'll get into some of that uh, probably in the second episode.
0: Well, are you ready to jump into some basic facts and findings about deja vu from scientific research?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Let's let's just start talking about what we know and what some of the theories are regarding the, the, the true nature of deja vu.
0: All right. Let us jump on this ghost train. Uh, so, First thing is, occasional cases of déjà vu are very common for neurologically typical people. Déjà vu, as uh, I think we alluded to this earlier, but it, it is not typically a sign of any kind of known pathology. It's just pretty common for people to experience it. Approximately 60% of people report having experienced déjà vu at some point.
1: Yeah, we're we're, of course, going to hear a lot from listeners about their particular experience with deja vu. And I just want to remind you, if you have not if you are one of these uh, uh, these people that have not experienced deja vu at some point in your life, uh, I want to know about that. I want to hear yeah. what what that's like and then how and how you process other people's reportings of uh, of deja vu.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if, uh, I, I guess it's fairly straightforward to explain. So you, you could know what it was, but you might not be able to understand how it feels if you've never felt it, even though you could. I mean, somebody can explain to you uh, like what the the frequency of light of the color red is, but you might not really be able to understand it if you've never been able to see red.
1: Yeah, because uh, De- Deja Vu in particular, I my, my take on it is that it, It feels at least casually weird. You know, (laughs) every time it happens, it is at least notable for a second where you're like, huh, well, that's that's odd. And then you move on. Well, no,
0: I do think that's interesting because to me, deja vu feels inherently weird. It's not just weird because you realize that it couldn't be correct. Like it's not just weird because you logically recognize the misperception for me, déjà vu feels weird the moment you experience it. Before you even realize anything's wrong, it is accompanied by a strange sensation.
1: Hmm. See that—that's interesting because it makes me think of between the two of us. Like your your typical déjà vu experience might be maybe more intense, or at least uh, you end up contemplating it more. I don't know than than I do, hmm. uh, and then of course the the. The episodes like I've had this week are, are certainly more pronounced than uh, than either of these cases. So, yeah. I don't know. But when uh, when I experience like just typical deja vu, it is it is generally just so casual that I might mention it if I am, uh, you know, if I'm, uh, you know, around somebody that I'm close to. But otherwise, it's just, it's like seeing a bird fly over. <laughs> That's funny. It's like, oh, well, there's another bird. I'm not going to point it out because it's not a special bird. It's just another bird. Hmm. Well, maybe this is another thing for listeners to tell us about. Oh, yeah, I I would love to hear from them.
0: So, we know it happens every now and then, at least pretty frequently, to uh, even typical, otherwise healthy people. But is there any psychological or neurological condition consistently associated with déjà vu? I would say the answer to this is um, the actual evidence for the link might be a little more tenuous than has sometimes been suggested, but... In the history of research on deja vu, there appears to be one major answer here, and that is temporal lobe epilepsy or TLE. Uh, So temporal lobe epilepsy is characterized by focal seizures that begin in the temporal lobe of the brain. And the temporal lobe is very important. It's a a crucial part of the brain that's been associated with major brain functions like emotional association, uh, visual and short-term memory. It does a lot of stuff with memory, like uh, understanding and processing language. Uh, There's a lot that goes on there. So where does the deja vu come in? Are are people with temporal lobe epilepsy just more likely to have deja vu experiences? The answer there is no. Instead, there is a specific case where people with temporal lobe epilepsy uh, tend to report deja vu. And that is in what's known as the aura before the onset of a seizure. So people with recurrent seizures often get this weird combination of feelings right before a seizure happens. It's, it's sometimes described as a kind of like series of warning signs. So these might uh, include sudden unexpected emotions, like you have elation or fear with no cause. Uh, another one might be numbness in parts of the body, weird smells or tastes from out of nowhere, like I, I smell oranges. Mm. Another one is known as epigastric phenomena. This refers to a weird feeling in the abdomen. I've read it sometimes described as a rising feeling Feeling, like when you're plummeting on a roller coaster. Um, epigastric specifically, I think, refers to uh, higher up on the abdomen. So uh, very often it's like right below the chest, above the stomach, you know, right sort of where your solar plexus is. But then finally, another recognized symptom of, uh, of the aura for temporal lobe epilepsy is deja vu, uh, which is interesting, right?
1: Yeah, because this this makes us look to causes in the brain, like, like more specifically, it, it, it seems like there must be some sort of um, uh, you know, neurophysical um, origin for what is occurring.
0: Yes. But on the other hand, I think we should also acknowledge that deja vu is, as we've said pretty common in people with no otherwise identified medical or neurological conditions. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I want to quote now from somebody I'm going to be referring to a lot uh, throughout this couple of episodes. Uh, this is Alan S. Brown who published a, a big review of, uh, of deja vu research in 2003 in the journal Psychological Bulletin. And this is an older paper and we'll have to refer to some more recent ones to supplement it. But uh, up to that point, it's a really fantastic review of all the research Uh, leading up to the early 2000s. And so Brown writes about the association between temporal lobe epilepsy and uh, déjà vu, that despite the fact that it is a recognized symptom of a TLE seizure onset, déjà vu doesn't appear to be more common in general in people with epilepsy. Quote, The weight of evidence argues against déjà vu being more common in people with epilepsy or being diagnostic of seizure pathology. So there's a couple of things to weigh there. On one hand, it is a recognized uh, feature that that a lot of people report uh, when they're about to have a temporal lobe uh, epileptic seizure. But on the other hand, it doesn't appear that people with temporal lobe epilepsy have déjà vu more often than people in general.
1: And uh, yeah, and for for that to make sense, all you have to do is just think back to some of these other symptoms uh, we were listing uh, that are part of the TLE aura, like n- none of these other symptoms are things that are exclusive uh, to uh, uh, people uh, that are experiencing uh, uh, epileptic seizures or anything. Uh, so it, it's just deja vu is thrown in the mix, but it's not exclusive to people with this condition. Right. Uh,
0: now, deja vu appears to be this is one that that does look pretty solid in in the research. It is associated with stress and fatigue. You mm-hmm. are more likely to have an episode of deja vu when you are tired and when you are agitated and you 've got your stress hormones you 're pumping your noradrenaline and cortisol. And this is interesting because I, I wonder how—I mean, it's not exactly the same thing as, Robert, you talking about your experience with uh, sudden anxiety-producing episodes of Deja Vu. But it it makes me wonder if there, there's some kind of connection here.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I ran across the same uh, information, I, I lined it up with uh, what I had experienced. And, okay, I, you know, obviously there's the stress level, which I've already touched on, but also— um, all the experiences I had were in the afternoon or the early evening. They were not uh, in the morning. You know, I did not experience them like when I in the first few hours after waking up or anything like that. So it's possible that yeah, I'm uh, throughout the day. I'm getting I'm getting more tired. I'm, I'm having you know I have less energy to to handle sort of the ambient stress that is around me, and uh, and that could potentially have some connection to the the, the deja vu uh, like experiences that I had.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, Now, the next thing that I thought was interesting is that uh, Brown reports that some studies have found that people who travel experience deja vu more than people who don't. Uh, for hmm. example, I, I was looking at a paper by Richardson and Winaker from 1967. Uh, it was summarizing an earlier study by Chapman and Minch from 1952, but uh, th- this study had defined travel as going more than 50 miles away from home. And it reported findings that, quote, non-travelers experience deja vu in only 11% of their number, and in those who traveled, 25 to 44% of their number. There was no relationship with the frequency of travel and so that part about no relationship with the frequency of travel makes me wonder like why would it be that people who like if this effect is real why would it be that people who travel some have more deja vu than people who don't travel at all but if you travel a lot you don't appear to have it much more than people who travel a little
1: hmm well, well the, 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 I guess the main potential answer that comes to my mind is that if, if we're thinking about deja vu as this experience by which the novel seems familiar, if something new seems like something old, mm-hmm. then perhaps there would be more potential to experience it if you live the sort of life uh, in general, Uh, either via travel or, you know, via other acts that line up with this personality type. Uh, You know, the more novelty in your life, the more potential there is to then have that turn around and be made uh, seemingly mundane through deja vu. Oh, yeah. I don't
0: know. Well, no, I've actually seen that hypothesized by uh, a researcher who I I think we're going to talk about more later, uh, Anne Cleary, who's done work on on, on deja vu. But I I think I also saw her mention at some point that there's some research indicating that people who watch more movies are also more likely to experience higher deja vu frequency
1: (laughs) interesting now now one uh, i have to catch myself though at the same time because when i think back about deja vu experiences i've had in the past a lot of them have not uh, they've not occurred while i'm traveling they occurred like if if i'm if they're occurring during novel experiences they're only mildly novel you know like oh like I've never maybe I've never stood in my backyard with a coffee mug you know at this particular spot before but that's hardly on par with say traveling you know around the world to uh, to Bangkok or something
0: mm-hmm. I was sailing to Byzantium.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um,
0: So there's an interesting thing that Alan Brown notes in his review, combining the last couple of facts, the idea that déjà vu appears to be strongly associated with stress and fatigue and the association with with travel. Um, He he notes that there was at least one clinician in the 1950s who observed that reports of déjà vu were especially common among soldiers heading into battle. Hmm. Weird. Uh, But it would combine those things, right? Heading into battle tends to combine stress, fatigue, and travel into new locations.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, You're really piling those up, yeah. Now, there's another one, uh, which
0: is that frequency of deja vu experience also shows a, a positive relationship with socioeconomic status and level of education. Uh, on average, people who are wealthier and people who have attained higher levels of education experience more frequency of deja vu or at least report more frequency of deja vu uh, on average. Hmm. And that does complicate some other findings, by the way. Like for I think Brown actually mentions – I wonder if like this is acting on the the travel variable, right, that like people who have more money are probably more likely to travel more frequently. So something could be going on there.
1: Yeah. And of course, it it also makes me wonder about the populations that are polled for these kind of studies. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I know that there's going to be at least one study later on that uh, that the the researchers point out that, well, we, we looked at like 444 people, but they were mostly psychology students, you know? (laughs) Right. Uh, So (laughs) there's a common problem with
0: with psychology research.
1: (laughs) So, uh, yeah, not to, because I don't know the the particulars of the the data that they're referring to here. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, perhaps the the polling data is, uh, uh, is the survey data is more robust than I'm giving it credit to. But I mean, obviously, that's always a potential problem when you're when you're considering uh, information like this. Absolutely.
0: Uh, another thing uh, I thought this was interesting, men and women seem to experience deja vu at about the same rate. There have been a few studies here and there that found gender differences, but they were not directionally consistent. And combining mm-hmm. all the results together did not find any differences for gender. Now, we've talked about overlap with neurological conditions, but here's one that should be very interesting. What about drugs? Do do any mm. drugs cause increased... Uh, Chances of déjà vu. Well, there are some isolated reports of certain drugs, yes, in it causing uh, very frequent episodes of déjà vu. For example, I was looking at a paper from the Journal of Clinical Neuroscience in two thousand one, where authors uh, Tero Timonen and Satu K. Yast- I think it's
1: pronounced Jones. <laughs>
0: Yaskalainen, I think, uh, report the case of, quote, a 39-year-old Caucasian healthy male physician who developed intense recurrent deja vu experiences within 24 hours of initiating concomitant, uh, and this is a couple of drugs, I'll I'll try the names here, uh, amantadine and... uh, phenylpropanolamine, uh, those are treatments against influenza. So he started taking these two drugs at the same time, amantadine and phenylpropanolamine. And uh, and then the déjà vu experiences stopped as soon as he stopped taking the medication. Now, amantadine is a drug that has multiple effects. It's used to uh, promote dopamine in patients with some neurological conditions, I think like Parkinson's disease, uh, but it's also used as an antiviral against influenza type A. Meanwhile, phenylpropanolamine is a decongestant that is sometimes used as a cough and cold medicine. Um, and I should note, I also found at least one other case report from the 90s of psychosis in an otherwise healthy patient brought on by this exact same drug combination. So, uh and this appears to be related to the ability of these drugs to mess around with your dopamine levels, mm-hmm. but we don't know for sure. And I, I must say that that would be such a strange uh, symptom to report to your doctor. You know, they say, take two and call me in the morning, and you call her back and say, Doc, I am, uh, I am experiencing deja vu every five minutes.
1: Yeah, I mean that would that would be something. Uh, but again, I mean there are other medications that have you know weird side effects like this. There's a there's a particular malaria treatment. Uh, I remember I remember being on vacation and uh, chatting with another couple that was on vacation. I believe, I believe this was in Costa Rica years and years ago. And um, uh, the, the older couple we were talking to, they were both on this. Uh, this anti-malarial uh, medication, uh, you know, is just just in case. But they were talking about the vivid dreams they would have every night because mm. of it. Yeah, it, was, it was quite interesting. It makes me want to come back and, and do an episode on malaria drugs, because uh, there are some there are some interesting stories about uh, side effects and complications uh, that have occurred with some of them.
0: Well, maybe we should take another quick break and then when we come back. We can discuss maybe the single most consistent finding in the literature on deja vu. All right, we're back. All right, now, uh, I think Brown actually notes this in his review, uh, that that probably the single most consistent finding in the literature on déjà vu is that frequency of déjà vu decreases with age. Isn't that strange? Uh, like, there, there's a graph that's included in, uh, in Brown's paper here that shows, uh, like, it takes average yearly experiences, like the mean of number – number of yearly experiences people report and uh, I I imagine that there must be a lot of guessing because if you're like us we don't exactly remember but you know people people are estimating and uh, you know you look at it and people in their like early 20s there's this spike and they're reporting somewhere between like two and a half and three uh, uh, experiences on average every year of deja vu but it's it sharply curves down you're down to like one or a half by the time you're in your late 30s and then and people in their like 60s are reporting extremely little.
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, it's a good thing we did the episode. If we uh, if we kept going, you and I are just going to get older and older and we'll have fewer fresh memories of déjà vu to talk about.
0: Oh, we just got to keep our stress and fatigue up and then we can buck <laughs> the trend, you know.
1: Yeah. Now, here's another big trend about uh, déjà vu experiences that uh, that we see reflected in, in all a lot of these different variations of it, including its uh, what is often held up as its opposite, uh, jamais vu.
0: Oh, yeah. And that means uh, something like never seen. It's the inverse. It would be, uh, you know, déjà vu is you see something new and you think I've seen this before. Jamais vu is you see something you should be familiar with and you think it's brand new. You've never seen it before. Yeah.
1: Well, well, one of the an attribute that one tends to encounter in all of these experiences is that people with intact reality testing do not have a problem identifying the deja vu as inherently unreal. And this comes back to something we were talking about with our own experiences, you know, like even these really pronounced experiences I had yesterday, even the experience I had as a, as a kid. Like, my, my brain kind of fact checked him and said, is this real? Is there really, is Fred Sanford really in my bedroom speaking through a fan? Uh, no, he's not. This is something else, you know? <laughs> Yes,
0: and that it's not, that's not a function of you being like a hyper-skeptical person or something, that that's like, that's normal for human brains.
1: Yeah, so I I was looking, reading around a little bit about reality testing, and uh, according to to University of Adelaide philosophy professor Philip uh, Garans, it's basically the system by which the brain monitors the brain's own storytelling system, the very narrative of our lives. So it ends up testing and rejecting ideas about reality. Now, uh, I I was running across, uh, uh, this was actually a a, a 2014 press release and an interview that was uh, published on Eureka Alerts. And uh, in this, Garans used the example of wondering if a common headache is a brain tumor. Like you get a headache and you're like, oh, boy, I've got a headache right now. I wonder if this is a brain tumor. Well, in a typical mind, this sort of thought is probably quickly rejected. You're like, no, this is just a normal headache. I had one of these last week and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a brain tumor. Then it's not a brain tumor today. It's nothing to get upset about. Okay, but but if one's reality testing is faulty, the notion that this might be a brain tumor, it might persist. It might even become more dominant. It might, uh, you know, become the thought itself becomes a malignancy. Uh, So this, uh, you know, faulty reality testing plays into various delusions, especially delusions that are tied to the way our brains process the familiar and the novel. And one of the examples that uh, Garans points to is cop gross delusion, which we've discussed in the show before.
0: Yeah, CapCraw is where you believe that that people you know have been replaced by doubles. So, like, you might see, you know, it often results from a particular brain injury or neurodegenerative disease or something that um, causes a a dysfunction of the part of the brain that cues the feeling of familiarity when you recognize familiar faces. So, you might see members of your family and you recognize them. You say, that looks just like dad – but you don't feel familiar, and thus you think that's not him, though. So you think that he's been replaced by a doppelganger or a lookalike.
1: Yeah, so so we can see that as kind of an extreme example of a delusion that's tied to malfunctioning uh, reality testing. Uh, and uh, and deja vu is also an example of a mental experience that is subjected to reality testing in a typical brain. And indeed, it will generally fail a reality test, even if it's distracting. Uh, part of the distraction for us is generally realizing that it's not real. Like just this week, those experiences I had, like one of the super distracting things was that I, I realized that this wasn't, you know, that this, something was weird here. That uh, you know, it made me question the the software, the hardware involved a little bit, but it didn't make me think, you know, that uh, you know, mind flayers are sending uh, thought beams into my brain or anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is generally an interesting question, how, how the brain tells what's real. I mean, I feel like we, we could do episode after episode on this subject, actually. Uh, but, like, like uh, this came up not too long ago when we were talking about visual imagination. I think this was an ep- mm-hmm. episode from last summer. Um, how there is evidence indicating that the brain uses some of the same infrastructure for imagining visual images that it uses for seeing with the eyes— And so if it does that, if there's stuff going on in the visual processing centers of the brain, just like when you actually look at a basketball uh, as when you imagine a basketball, how does your brain – know that when you are imagining a basketball you're not really seeing one clearly there can be cases where that uh that reality testing fails and this would be like you imagine seeing something and then you think it's really there uh, the, this is you know i think what's generally accepted to happen in psychosis is like your your reality testing fails and the line between what is imagined and what is perceived as reality breaks
1: Yeah. And this, of course, applies to dreams as well. Uh, Garan's pointed out that during dreams, our reality testing is effectively switched off. So we simply have experiences. We don't have beliefs about experiences, which uh, was interesting. I I, I don't think I'd ever... Uh, You know, certainly we've covered dreams and the nature of dreams and thoughts about dreams in the show before, but I I, I don't think I'd ever heard it put uh, so succinctly before.
0: Yeah, well, I think we have talked about the idea that in dreams, clearly critical thinking is reduced. Um, yes, yes, definitely. And, uh, that, that seems to be an extremely common feature of dream cognition and not just the kind of deliberate, effortful, critical thinking that you do when you're like, OK, you know, I'm trying to understand. Is there a problem with this scientific claim or something? I mean, the the, the normal, automatic critical thinking that we do that forms the basis of our intuitive reality testing, even that is sort of turned off sometimes in dreams or at least greatly diminished.
1: Yeah, it's the kind of statement that makes me feel better about being such a horrible lucid dreamer. Not that I put <laughs> in a lot of work on it, but uh, I have frequently noticed that at times, the rare times where I feel like I could have lucid dreamed, uh, I clearly didn't have it in me. Like I just <laughs> fell right back into into just experiencing, and certainly not having any beliefs or thoughts about the experience.
0: This is so embarrassing. I'm such a dream loser. I, I've probably told you this before, but. A very common experience I have in dreams is stopping in the middle of a dream and thinking, hold on a second, I'm dreaming right now, right? Is this a dream? And then in the dream, I try to pursue that question and interrogate it, and then I invariably every single time end up concluding, no, this is definitely real. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh. See, I've had, I've, I've probably shared this before too. I'll have experiences where I'm dreaming, I realize I'm dreaming, and then I just click it right back off again. I'm, and then I just fall right back into the dream. I had that moment where I was like raising my, my head above the waters and I, I could can see like that seems the time to take the reins of of the dream and and then engage in lucid dreaming but i don't i just fall right back underwater
0: this is funny so we got similar things going on actually except i just like i address it more head on and still fail <laughs>
1: Uh, by the way, uh, Garanz is the author of The Measure of Madness, Philosophy and Cognitive Neuropsychiatry, which was published by MIT Press, if anybody wants to, to look up, uh, more of their work. But, uh, uh, in, in general, though, just re- about the, the connection between deja vu and dreams, uh, I guess it's gonna be the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, where we'll definitely touch on, uh, on some studies related to that. But then we'll also get into really some of the, the core theories regarding that the the true nature of deja vu itself
0: yeah next time we're going to explore scientific theories that have tried to explain why the brain creates the feeling of deja vu what it comes from and we'll look into dreams we'll look into anxiety and more i think it's going to be very fun
1: yeah and certainly feel free to reach out to us in the meantime knowing of course that there's about to be another episode where we'll We'll probably answer some of your questions, but hey, maybe not. Uh, So it's always good to hear from you either way. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts, wherever that happens to be. Just support the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Uh, That's the the trinity of actions that help our show out. And if you just go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, that will shoot you to the iHeart listing for our show, where you can basically do all three of those things as well.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson, who, again, I just want to emphasize has been doing really heroic work while uh, Robert and I and all of us are, are trying to work from home and do social distancing. Uh, Seth has helped us figure out all manner of uh, gear stuff, closet stuff. And then today, I couldn't even understand why my microphone wasn't working for the first half hour we tried this. So, uh, <laughs> so thank you, Seth. Thank you, Seth. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest something for the future, or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, uh, what's going on with you, whatever it is, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.